Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. See it, hear it, think it. Talk radio and talk TV. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Right here, it's Monday. Uh, the snow is not falling. Uh, the hail isn't falling. It was raining a little bit earlier, but now there's a bit of sun. Uh, there's some clouds in the sky. Um, the horizon looks a bit on the dark side, you've got to be said. Uh, we'll be talking just there to Julie Hartley Brewer. Uh, the market's currently in free fall uh, because of what is alleged to be uh, the budget changes that were made by Quasi Kwarteng, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, on Friday. You and I know that this is the home of common sense. You and I know that this is the place you get the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And let me tell you the truth here. There's an awful lot of people speculating on the currency markets. There's even more people speculating on the bond markets. You might remember a guy called Nick Leeson. He was a bloke who had a position uh, in the bond markets, which was not a very good position. He tried and tried and tried to cover his backside and failed miserably. He didn't tell his bosses how far into the doo-doo he was, and he ended up crashing Bearings Bank. All of all on his own, all his lonesome. There are people in the city of London right now literally ordering Ferraris, ordering Bentleys, just the small one, mind you. Uh, the odd Lamborghini 4x4, possibly. Buying new houses in France. They're making an absolute fortune. Make no mistake, an awful lot of what is going on here is speculation in the markets, right? It's nothing to do with whether or not people think Quasi Kwarteng is a good Chancellor. It's nothing to do with, as Labour would have you believe, nobody's got any confidence in the government. It is all to do with the way the markets operate, and anybody with half a brain will tell you that. So, let's not get too carried away, shall we? It may well be that the Bank of England has to step in. It may well be that interest rates will go up again, but I've been warning you that this could happen anyway. Because the fact is you cannot keep interest rates at 0.25% forever. They went up, of course, last week. They may go up again this week. And if you are a homeowner, you are going to be pretty concerned about that. But we're going to talk to John Redwood this morning, a Conservative MP for Wokingham. We'll find out what he makes of the quasi Quartain budget and whether Liz Truss and he and the big gamble that they've got themselves into is going to pay off. The fact is nobody really knows. But don't listen to people who say trickle-down economics doesn't work because they're wrong. It does work, actually, and there's plenty of evidence to suggest that it does work, and we can bring it to you if you so wish. We'll be talking about other things, of course, as well. Um, Prince Harry, I'm afraid, is back in the news. He says he wants to rewrite bits of his book. Now, why would he want to do that if he hadn't written anything embarrassing, if he hadn't written anything nasty about the royal family, if he hadn't written anything really not very nice about the Queen? Well, I would suggest to you that he did write all of those things at the behest of Mrs Harry, otherwise known as the Duchess of Netflix, because we can call her that now that the morning period is over for us. The point is this. If you buy something from somebody, intellectual property, you might call it, because they're going to tell you some really juicy things, and then they say, we don't really want to tell you the juicy things, well, you say, well, in that case, I'm not going to give you the money. Don't you? We'll talk about that. We'll also talk about electric cars, because guess what? It now costs you about 18p a mile to run an electric car, thanks to the cost of electricity. Do you know how much it costs to run a petrol car? 19p. <laughs> yes, we all know where that one's going. 0344-499-1000. This is the Independent Republican Mike Graham. We are in a crisis once again, ladies and gentlemen, but we're going to try and keep you happy and keep you out of it. 
Let's get it on. Well, well, well. Pound plunges to an all-time low of 1.03 against the dollar. Pressure on the Bank of England for emergency interest rate hike with fears of fresh inflation surge as Tories blame Quasi Quarteng for schizophrenic budget. Now, there's a headline to be contended with. Let's talk to Sir John Redwood MP and find out whether he agrees. Sir John, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Now, these are difficult times, as we all know. We sort of hurtle from one interesting week to another. Uh, This week, we're told the markets are in free fall. I don't know whether you agree with my summation uh, of what was just said there, but there's an awful lot of um, profiteering going on, it seems to me. I don't see this as a a lack of confidence in the government. The markets are exceptionally volatile. And as you say, some big traders are taking very big positions A lot of them went very short of the pound. Some of them have now got to close those positions out. Uh, Very interesting that in Asia overnight, the pound hit a low of $1.03. And yet this morning when I checked my uh, television, it said it was $1.08. So we've had a $0.05 rally. So are (laughs) they now going to write a story saying suddenly the markets are full of confidence in the government, having written the overnight story that it lacked confidence yes. in the government. You're right. It's all absurd. It, it's exaggerated. Uh, traders do what traders do. The markets are very volatile. And governments and central banks shouldn't react to every daily move. I mean, I remember because I was working in New York City at the time, when the last time it went down, I think it went down to something like 108. And I was being paid at that time in pounds. So it was a bit painful for me to see the uh, the parity practically getting there. But, you know, it was like that for a while and it came back. And then pretty soon it was back to 150 and back to 175. And, you know, it never quite got back to 250 to the pound. But, you know, that's the way it goes, isn't it? Well, I mean, the underlying reality, Mike, as you've been saying, is that as a result of the, the government's announcements on Wednesday and Friday last week, we're not going to have a long, deep recession of the kind we were staring in the face because the government is giving us some of our money back. Um, the government and the energy prices were taking far too much money out of our pockets and bank accounts. And the government was right to say this is overdone. This will create a big recession. So we need to see that off. So it's good news Wednesday and Friday that we're fighting recession now and we're recognizing that people were in pain and businesses were were going to go under because they couldn't afford these energy prices. What we now need to see from the government uh, is the the promised work which they must bring forward as quickly as possible to expand our capacity, increase the amount of energy we can produce for ourselves, to show how we can grow more of our own food because we import too much. Mm. Uh, and that always leaves you a bit at risk to these currency speculators and wild markets. Right. And it may well be that as a result of what's happening to the pound, that people actually do kind of have a look at all of that and go, do you know what? We should not be paying ludicrous amounts of money for things simply because of some currency traders in the city of London and in the Hong Kong exchanges and in Wall Street. You know, why don't we just grow our own food? And so maybe there will be a kind of, um, you know, reconnection with all of that. Yeah, I mean, if the pound stays this low, it's another really big incentive for people to set up businesses here, expand businesses here, uh, to grow more food, uh, to deal with those very expensive imports. Because undoubtedly, our imports are now dearer because the pound has fallen a bit. Right. And the other thing that uh, people need to bear in mind is that there's been a massive sell off, not just in the pound, but in most other major currencies against the dollar. Uh, because the dollar interest rates are so much more attractive Mm. and there's been a flood of money into dollars. 
And there's been a huge sell-off in government debt markets in most of the advanced countries because they're all sticking interest rates up. Yeah. And it is going to get dearer for governments to borrow as a result. Mm. And do you expect the government to step in at some point? I was listening to Julie Hartley-Brewer this morning. She said to me just before I took over, surely Kwasi Kwarteng or Liz Trust will have to make some kind of statement today about what their intention is uh, vis-a-vis the rest of the week if the pound continues to fall. Well, I hope not. I think that would not be a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> As we've just been agreeing, markets do what markets want to do, yeah. and there are very big sums of money being traded both for and against the pound. We saw the ones against the pound winning overnight. We see the ones this morning in favour of the pound winning. They will play out their battles with these large sums of money they have in their investment banks. And I don't think providing a running commentary on it would be a good idea. And pretending you can control it would be a very silly idea as well. Well, indeed. Um, the government needs to run a good economic policy and the markets will, in due course, value our power more sensibly. Yeah. I think I wonder sometimes whether we've become so kind of um, dependent upon government announcements that we kind of expect them all the time. Because during Boris Johnson's reign, um, it seemed as though, obviously during COVID, there was a sort of government press conference every day. I think people got kind of used to that. And I, I, I'm like you. I'd rather see government staying the hell away from, from all of us and just letting us get on with our lives, with our money, and letting them get on with the things that they're good at. Well, indeed, most people in, in Britain still work in the private sector for competitive companies. And on the whole, they don't need governments telling them how to run their business or intervening. Yeah. Just occasionally something goes so wrong in markets, as with the energy prices, that rightly the government has to do something. Mm. Incidentally, most of that was originally caused by politics because it was a nasty war and an invasion and the response to the invasion that caused the energy prices to go haywire. So it's appropriate for the government to respond. But the government shouldn't be daily intervening to say, oh, dear, you've lost a little bit of money by buying some bonds. We're going to help you out. Uh, yeah, you have to take your you're rough with your smooth when you're buying mm. financial assets, if that's what you do. Yeah, absolutely right. And as far as the, the budget itself or the mini budget or whatever you want to call it, the uh, fiscal event that took place on Friday, a lot of people remarked that the Tory backbenchers were quite quiet and sort of muted, uh, muted about it all because they weren't quite sure, one, whether it was a good idea, they were, or, uh, depending on who you speak to, they were slightly taken aback by the, the scale of, of, of the, uh, the tax cuts. Which, which sort of camp are you in on that, John? Well, I was all in favour of, of the stimulus, as I was explaining, because I think we're fighting recession more than inflation. I, I do actually believe that they, the Bank of England has now got it right. I think they've done quite enough to bring price increases down next year and the year after. The, the Bank of England is forecasting back to 2% within two years. I think they will achieve that on current policy. So the last thing I want is them uh, putting on more hair shirts and, and throttling the economy rather more. Mm. Uh, I think the, the mood on the back benches was... Um, supportive by and large. There's a small group of people who supported Rishi Sunak who, who are not so keen on the policy. But when I went into the tea room afterwards to see what the chat was like, it was overwhelmingly in favour of the package. And I think maybe people were a bit taken aback by the fact that we got tax cuts on top of the ones we knew we were getting, because we obviously knew we were getting the, um, the corporation tax and the national insurance, because that had been a central feature of Liz's leadership campaign. Mm, absolutely right. And so as far as the next phase goes, I saw Kwasi Kwarteng interviewed over the weekend, as I'm sure you did. He says that there's going to be other government departments, other cabinet ministers coming forward to talk about their plans and how they will fund mm. those. Yeah. Um, do you think this is a good start for him? Yeah, it's a very good start. I think he's um, changed the debate. He's made people understand that 
we've got to do something different in this country to get the growth and prosperity we want. Uh, and it's always been about more and better paid jobs, but we weren't getting there quickly enough. And then we had to fight off this recessionary trend, which was digging in worldwide, led by America, um, having to slow her economy in a hurry with a massive increase in American interest rates. And that is a big shock to the system. And the UK was right to change the debate and say we've got to do better. And I think it will lead to good ideas in a number of departments. I think they're going to change agricultural policy so that it's more supportive for promoting homegrown food. They're obviously going to make big changes in energy policy because we're far too dependent on imported energy when this country is potentially energy rich. And I look forward to those new investment projects to get out our own gas in bigger quantities. Because uh, however green you are, you have to accept that this decade, most people are going to heat their homes by gas and most industries are going to use gas in their factories. Right. So why not produce it at home and save the money going abroad? Well, we're going to be uh, talking about this later on in the show. But uh, as we've now found out today, the price of um, charging your electric car uh, is practically the same now uh, as actually putting petrol in it. So, um, you know, the advantage that people thought they were going to get from buying a green car uh, and driving around in it feeling very smug uh, appears to have disappeared. But stay where you are, John, if you will. So John Redwood here with us. I want to talk to you about immigration. I want to talk to you about the energy uh, do's and don'ts and also Labour's plans, which apparently seem to revolve around a green industrial revolution. Sounds familiar. Wasn't that what Boris Johnson wanted to do? He couldn't manage it, and neither will they. Uh, the most boring man in Britain uh, is still in charge of Labour, and I'm afraid uh, he's not getting very much interest at all. Uh, this is Talk TV. I'm Mike Graham. We'll back with Sir John Redwood after this. Let's broaden our minds. Talk Radio. Nationwide, by your side, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV, with you all the way through, of course, until one o'clock. We're talking about uh, the state of the nation once more with Sir John Redwood, Conservative MP for Wokingham. We've talked about uh, the amount of speculation that's going on in the city, the amount of selling and buying that's going on uh, with those boys and girls in the city who make themselves an awful lot of money uh, when anything happens which is in any way extreme. So when the pound dives or when it soars, that's when they make the most money, and that's what's going on at the moment. Uh, we've been talking, John, about uh, Energy. You say you're looking forward to uh, the energy kind of uh, revolution, if you like, uh, which is where we use much more of our own homegrown energy. What do you make of um, uh, Sir Keir Starmer's energy plans? He's unveiled uh, yesterday a big new sort of proposal for Labour to go even more green than Boris Johnson wanted to do. Well, I just don't think it's realistic to say that we will not be using gas and coal fossil fuels to generate electricity uh, this decade. Uh, because we're not going to get in place all of the things you would need to get in place in order to replace them with carbon-free generation. And if you want nuclear, nobody believes there could be a new nuclear power station uh, commissioned today that will be in place before 2030. And in the meantime, we know that most of our nuclear power stations currently running are actually going to close down mm. because they're, they're old and, and they will run out of uh, safety certification. And so we'll actually be generating less nuclear at the end of the decade rather than more. And if you want uh, to rely much more on wind, you've got to put in battery storage, hydrogen storage, some form of storage, because otherwise, what's the point of relying entirely on wind mm. with lots of wind turbines? Because uh, you'll get wind-free days and then you'll have no power. Yeah. So I think the, the danger of the Labour policy is it would be the blackout policy. 
Well, I mean, we're already seeing, aren't we, that they're having rolling blackouts in California because of all the problems they've got with the number of uh, cars that are electric and the number of people that want to use electricity. And so it seems obvious to me that the thing that technologically we should be looking at if they want to go down that road is, as you say, how the hell do you store it? I'm amazed that we haven't really got a decent way of storing electricity in, in this day and age. Yeah, and that's the big challenge. And it's got to be a commercial way of doing it. There are various experiments going on with conversion of green electricity into hydrogen, which you can store, or conversion into battery stored power, or you could put in more pump storage systems. But these things all take time, and they're not yet being rolled out commercially. They all need subsidy and public in, in, uh, support. Uh, so we're not talking anytime soon. So in the meantime, the reality is that most people in this country have gas boilers. Most people have petrol and diesel cars. We've got quite a lot of oil and, and gas uh, under our feet mm. or out in the North Sea in, in particular. And we need to get more of it out so that then uh, we have more available domestically. It actually generates less CO2 to use your own gas than to import it in LNG form. Yeah. Uh, and it's an awful lot cheaper on the taxpayer because, of course, we get all the tax revenues mm. on the oil and gas we produce at home, uh, whereas all the tax revenues go abroad if you import it. So right. it's a no-brainer and it yeah. will create a lot more better paid jobs in the process. So let's get on with it. And it's such a pity the opposition parties don't want to support our domestic oil and gas industry. Yes, isn't it a shame? But the other thing that's a shame is that we've had to get to this point, John, um, where sort of sem- seemingly nothing much has been done to prepare us for this point in history. You know, that we've kind of neglected our own um, fossil fuels because it's been the wrong thing to do. We did away with the uh, the gas storage systems we had in the North Sea. You know, we've, as you say, uh, allowed ourselves to become far too dependent on foreign um, energy companies. I mean, how did it happen? I mean, was it was it people just not paying attention? What was going on? Because you've been in government uh, during those periods, on and off. You've been in government many times. Uh, what's been, what's been happening? Well, it was a combination of um, quite a lot of people in around British government and the heads of all the major parties who really wanted Britain to drive net zero forward, and so they thought relying on imports was the quickest way of doing it. And the Europe-wide policy, which we had to follow up until 2020, uh, which encouraged all that. It was very much built around net zero. It was built around importing uh, rather than producing your own. And it was pretty negative on anything that involved fossil fuels with extra carbon taxes imposed. Mm. And Britain followed that to the letter. And so we got to the point where we did need to import electricity and lots of gas from Uh, other parts of Europe in order to survive. And then suddenly we realize now, uh, rather late in the day, that Europe itself doesn't have very much energy and it was actually relying on Russian gas and Russian coal. And that wasn't a good look. Mm. And so now we've got to catch up and we can do more than most of the continent because we still got some oil and gas and coal which we can actually get out. But how soon can we get it out, I suppose is the question. Well, I mean, starting now, gradually it builds up, doesn't it? The the easiest thing to do is to get a bit more gas out of a gas field where you've already made an investment. And then the the next easiest thing is to put some extra wells in to an existing investment. And then the next thing you can do is there are some new fields quite close to old fields. So you can drill holes in those and link them in to production capabilities that are already there on the old fields. And then if you want a brand new field, then it's several years, obviously, before you can drill holes and put in the necessary production capacity. Mm. So you've got to build it up gradually. 
And if you do find some onshore gas, and there is some out there which people would be happy to see exploited, that's a lot quicker. So it's a lot easier to um, cap a well neatly and mm. quietly in the countryside than it is uh, with many hundred hundreds of feet of water above you. No, quite. Let's talk a bit about immigration. We've got Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng saying that there may need to be some kind of new immigration deal offered to certain certain countries to bring people in to work in certain businesses. There's a bit of opposition here from Suella Braverman, the Home Secretary, and, of course, uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg. Um, what do you think? Well, I think um, the compromise position is that we welcome in people of talent and with special skills that we need, and you can best judge that both both by qualifications and or by uh, amounts of pay they would immediately command. Uh, but we work away much more at ensuring all the other jobs are available for people already here who are on benefits, who need a bit of help, a bit of mentoring, maybe a bit of support in order to take those jobs on. Uh, and some of those um, not so interesting jobs should be replaced with investment. And I think the uh, cheap labour model, which we were using when we in the EU, was not a good one. Mm. It meant that people didn't invest in labour-saving machinery. They got in people to do jobs that wages British people wouldn't accept. Uh, and it may have been cheap for the company, but it wasn't cheap for the state. Because, of course, for every person you invite in on a low wage, the state needs to provide housing and school places mm. and health facilities and benefit top-ups of income and all the rest of it. So it was very expensive for the state. So I hope we won't be going back down that route. Yeah, indeed. And also, we were all expecting Suella Braverman to have something to say about the migrant crossings that are still going on from Calais, 30,000 plus already, and it's not even the end of September. She really needs to get to grips with that, doesn't she? Well, I think she will. I think she's, she's a brilliant lady. She's a skilled lawyer, which you need to be to cut through. The previous Home Secretary was very keen to sort it out, as keen as you and I have been. Uh, but she was constantly thwarted by clever lawyers mm. who, who found ways around the system. I think Suella Breverman will have the extra legal expertise uh, in order to change the law in the way we need to do. And my understanding is she's she's pressing on with that as quickly as possible and expect an announcement soon. And the sooner the better. Yeah, absolutely right. Final word as to John. Do you expect to see the pound bouncing back properly um, in about a week's time? Sorry, do I expect to see? See the pound bouncing back properly. Well, it may well do, Mike. I mean, it's bounced beautifully this morning, as I, as I told you a few hours earlier. It's gone from 103 to, to 108, just yeah. like that. Yes. Uh, but it will go up and down because big sums of money are moving as people try to make money. Uh, and when the, the people selling the pound have sold too much of it, they are then in great danger of losing a load of money because then some buying can squeeze yeah. them. And I look forward to that. Well, moment. that's it, you see, because if you'd bought it at 103, you'd now be sitting on a great big pile of money having sold it at 108. Mm. You know, that's the way it goes. But thank you, Sir John yeah. Redwood. Thank you very much indeed. Conservative MP for Wokingham. It's very important to know how things work in this country. Don't listen uh, to those people who are biased in the media to tell you that it's all going horribly wrong. There's no confidence in the government. There's no confidence in print. It's not so. It really isn't. 0344 499 1000. Coming up next, we're going to be talking to Duncan Larkham about Prince Harry, and we'll take your calls. 
Welcome back to Talk TV. I'm Mike Graham. This is, of course, the Independent Republic, and we are here with you all the way through until one o'clock when uh, Ian Collins will join us, of course, uh, with his show from one until four. Much to talk about this morning, uh, including the price of electricity, because, of course, uh, as everybody knows, the price of all sorts of fuel have gone through the roof. However, petrol prices and diesel prices have been coming back down again. Uh, I've been seeing petrol prices around about 159, 160 over the course of the weekend. Uh, And, of course, it's now costing almost as much to charge your electric car as it is to put petrol in it so fascinating times we'll be talking about that coming up a little bit later on peter hitchens of course will be here as well uh, in the second hour of the show right now though let's talk to uh, duncan larkham who is a man who knows a thing or two about the royal family uh, he is of course former royal editor at the sun and uh, now is a royal author um, prince harry is also now i suppose technically a royal author being one uh, formerly royal and two having written a book however The problem is, after his recent trip uh, to Britain, which happened before, obviously, uh, the Queen's death, but since all of that happened, uh, there's thought to have been some kind of rapprochement, possibly, between him and his father, between him and his brother. It remains to be seen, though, whether that will have any effect. But what we do know uh, is that the book which he promised to write has been written, and he's now going to try to actually change some of the facts and some of the stories in that book. Let's find out why. Duncan, a very good uh, morning to you. Morning, Mike. Thanks for having me back. Not at all. So um, this is all quite fascinating stuff because we weren't really sure whether the book was done or how how far the book had got. And, you know, you know, it's being written, I think, is it not by some American journalists, I think, alongside uh, Prince Harry. But how basically um, is he going to be able to take things out? Because if you're a publisher, I mean, you've published a few books. If you if you promise something to a publisher and then you go, actually, we don't want you to do that. You can't have that bit. We'll take that bit out. And it happens to be a pretty juicy story. Mm. Presumably the publisher will go, well, actually, we'd rather keep it in, otherwise we're not going to pay you. Well, to be honest, as we know, Mike, that happens as a career I had as a journalist where you someone comes with you with a story, something changes, and they don't want the story to go out. Mm. It doesn't quite work like that, unfortunately. Yeah, there's a, big, there's a big difference, isn't there, between being angry and sitting down with your wife on Oprah Winfrey's mm. sofa and throwing truth bombs, but sitting down, writing a book that's going to be more than 100,000 words... Uh, to, to promise presumably more truth bombs, uh, you know, you, it's something that you can't just suddenly turn around to the publishers and say, oh, no, I'm, I'm sorry, I've, I've made up with my father now. Can I change chapters one to 74 and write something nice about the Queen at the end? You right. know, it, it's not quite going to work like right. that, and, and presumably it also would suggest, would it not, that he has written some things in there that would upset the royal family. Well, look, I think the very fact that he's making this incredible break with protocol by writing a memoir where he promises to be honest in itself is is a departure from what any member of the royal family would regard as as uh, acceptable behavior mm. i mean harry's cut very close mates out of his out of his life in the past don't remember meghan's father how harry has cut him out she's ne- he's never met him since right. they got married because he went to the media one strike and you're out it's a rule the royals live by and harry will know he's got to live by that too so if he has had this healing with his brother and and the king uh, who have definitely given him an olive branch during the last few incredible uh, days if he has had a change of heart then you know he's presumably if he if he can't have his way and change what he's already written and the book comes out anyway this could be a disaster because it will effectively snap that olive branch mm. from the king and 
put us right back to square one or worse. Exactly right. And what about if he says, look, I'll tell you what, if we can't find some kind of arrangement, then let's just not publish the book and, and just don't give me any money. I mean, could that work? Well, don't forget, Megan had a, a, a couple of deals that, that were um, very lucrative. Um, uh, most notably, I think, one with a job she was doing with David Furnish, Elton mm. John's other half, um, to, to create a, a character on, on Netflix. So deals have fallen through. Uh, it might be that Harry's not really able to afford it because we still haven't really seen anything from his Netflix deal, which they say is worth over $100 million. Mm. So not only toning down the book, how on earth are they going to provide $100-plus worth of content and juice, if you like, if they're no longer going to trade on the royal family's brand? If they don't stop trading on the royal brand, brand then Mike you can forget any reconciliation yeah. that's it well that's the thing and if they do, and if they do stop then that's they're not very interesting to anyone anymore either are they because if they are then going to be getting on nicey nicey with the with everyone in Windsor um then they've got nothing to sell really because nobody wants that story look I I mean that's that is a fact isn't it i can't argue with that i mean would netflix give someone a hundred would, would someone give a, a book deal worth 10 million pounds if you hadn't been president of america or uh, a rock star yeah. for 40 years or a chap whose father happens to be the king i mean that's what it is about harry that makes him valuable yeah. so we can't change that so if there it's almost like we're in a catch-22 mm. now everyone is watching to see Mer what harry and Meghan will do next they stayed quiet since the funeral but it is their move. This is their olive branch to snap. So it, it is sort of now the dust settling, mm. Mike. This is actually getting quite serious. Yes, and also with the with the books that, that have been coming out recently, you know, Angela Levin's mm. book, Valentine Lowe's book. You know, I mm. mean, there's some pretty interesting stuff coming out of those about um, about Harry and Meghan as well. That'll be driving her mad, won't it? Look, Valentine Lowe in particular, the Times Royal correspondent. He is not. Um, he, he's slightly posher than Charles Brandreth, if you catch my drift. <laughs> he, he's not a man known for breaking big stories. He's a brilliant writer. So for him, with his relationship with Charles and his relationship with Prince William and Kate, forged over years mm. of working quietly as the Times Royal Man, for him to break ranks and write that, I'm afraid, unless someone tells me other side, uh, otherwise, Mike, I believe every word that Valentine's written. And it's scathing of Meghan. And it, it is scathing. And it's scathing of both of them and their relationship with the press. You know, even that, like, sort of thing that happened when they get off a plane was also uh, carrying members of the press on a trip they were on. And he says, thanks for coming, even though you weren't invited. You know, all of that sort of thing. It's incredibly, you know, he clearly hates the press. You know, he hates publicity, um, which makes it even more ironic that he's seeking to make money from writing a book. Well, it's a bit of a mess, Mike, because what, like you say, what else do they do? If mm. they make friends with the royals now and they lose their brand, well, they lose the brand of, of trading in on, on, on everything else. If they're only going to be in California playing some sort of supportive role to William and Kate and sending them good wishes and support, uh, but then keep their mouths shut and actually feed their chickens and play with their children, mm. then fine. But, but who on earth thinks Harry and Meghan are really going to do that and just disappear? Yeah. They're wealthy enough. They've got... They've got tens of millions in the bank to worry about how to spend. Mm. So it is possible. But, you know, we're talking about brands and egos and longevity. And that's Megan's cup of tea. So mm. what's 
face, I think, Mike. I think that's absolutely right. Duncan, good to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Duncan Larkin, former Royal Editor at The Sun, um, with another fine mess uh, for Harry and Meghan. Uh, let's face it, they won't be able to jump the queue uh, to get to the front of the uh, Tesla scenario where they can charge up their electric Audi because uh, apparently they're having rolling blackouts in California. We'll talk more about that coming up next. We'll take your calls as well. 0344 499 1000. We'll cross to Peter Cardwell as well, uh, who's up at Labour Party Conference in Liverpool for us. We'll find out what's going on up there. This is Talk TV. See it, hear it, think it. Talk radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV with you all the way through until one o'clock. We are watching uh, the city, of course. As I said before, there's an awful lot of people uh, getting very wealthy right now. Uh, if they sold uh, their share of the pound at 18108, uh, which it bounced back to this morning, having bought it at 103, they'd be making loads of money and they'd be buying new Ferraris. Peter Hitchens is here with me. Uh, he's going to talk to us about what his feeling is about the weakness of the pound against the dollar and how significant that actually is. Um, but I still maintain there's an awful lot of people making an awful lot of money uh, on this particular situation and whether or not the interest rates go up again at the end of this week which they may well do whether or not the prime minister or the chancellor decide to do nothing or to say nothing uh, or to come out and make a statement you know it's not really within their control anymore we'll talk about what's going on in ukraine as well peter's here uh, to talk about that plus a great many other things proportional representation possibly on the horizon uh, you never know we'll take your calls as well 0344 499 1000 i think we've fixed whatever was the problem with the phone system so you will be able to get on hopefully um 0344 499 1000 is the number this is the independent republican mike graham let's get it on Peter Hitchens is here. Very good morning to you, sir. Morning. Um, so, um, we find ourselves once again staring down the wrong end of the barrel, um, waiting to see what uh, the currency will fall to and whether anything gets done about it. What's your uh, take on it? I think the pound is going before too very long to fall below parity with the dollar, and I think mm. that will be a very big psychological moment for this country. Mm. I, you it, mean it, like never to return? I would doubt very much whether it returns. I mean, obviously, a lot of this has to do with the, with the Americans jacking up their interest rates, but yeah. it also has to do with the relative strengths of the two economies, and ours is not strong. And I think a lot of people outside this country are not particularly confident in the government's ability to actually create the growth it claims it's going to. It's not It's not a method that's generally popular among governments to, to borrow your way out of uh, out of recession by and, and, and spending an awful lot of borrowed money. Might work. Mm-hmm. Uh, who, who is going to sit here and say it will never work? But I th- most of the signs are that it won't, and it has contributed, I think, to this. But in general, we are a declining economy. I think people need to realize just how heavily exposed we are to all kinds of debt, personal and public. And people are beginning to notice. For mm. a very long time, we've had a, a rather odd free pass. I've, I've almost always, I've been abroad a lot in my life, and almost always I felt rather lucky that mm. most people seem to think that, that uh, Britain is a st- solid, stable economy. So I've got a lot of money for my pound. When yeah. I lived in the USA, I think I was still getting to 40. Uh, and for most of my life, it was 280. Yeah. And before that, it was $4 to the, to the pound. And in, in, in fact, in the pre-First World War era, it was, mm. it was $5 to the pound. Mm. Uh, the, you, we were talking earlier about how, how cab drivers would refer to half a crown, the, which is half, yeah. half a dollar mm. in the days when when a dollar was generally assumed to be roughly... Is that more about the strength, five shillings, of, 25 pounds? the strength of America's sort of economy rather than the weakness of ours? Though? Partly. It is, it is obviously a, a relative thing, but mm. I think it does reflect the fact that we have moved in, a, in, a, in just over a century from having been the financial centre of the world and one of the richest and most prosperous countries in the world with huge overseas assets to a detonation. 
And that's what we are now. And I, I, I don't say this out of any exaltation. Mm. I just think people in politics and public life should not raise the expectations of people that we can continue to live as we have mm. unless we make very substantial changes. And it, all, all evidence points this way, that we, we, are, we are in quite serious trouble mm. unless we make quite major changes in the way we govern ourselves and govern our economy. And the way that people live now, I was saying this last week before the, the, the measures even came in on Friday, before we knew what they actually were from Kwasi Kwarteng, that you know, people now do live a much better existence in terms of what they have, in terms of what they can afford, because they borrow more money. I mean, you see people now driving around in cars, the like of which you would never have seen even 10 years ago. People no. now get cars that they really can't afford because they've been made affordable. Well, they've been made affordable by by, by, borrow, by borrowed by money. Borrowed money. Yeah. But in, you do in the end, you can only borrow money once. You do in the end have to pay it back. Yeah. People say, well, governments don't have to. But the problem with governments is that they're not totally sovereign, uh, as we see in the value mm. of the pound. I think part of the reason for the fall in the value of the pound is the realization among foreign investors and generally among among people observing this country from a long way off that we are quite heavily indebted mm. and we're not our economy is not very healthy you can't carry on doing it without people noticing and right. when they notice then the, the whole as it were the share price of, of britain falls yes i think to some extent that's what's happening well one of the indicators for me and i was told this by somebody this morning who i spoke to in the city um is that the bond market is also tanking and because people have worked out that the government will have to prop up the bond market, as it were, because they've worked out that, that they're just borrowing too much money. Well, it's, it will become more expensive for the, for the British government to borrow. That mm. has been one of the luxuries of being one, one of the big nations, is that you can borrow more cheaply, and yeah. how long will that last? I, it, it does. It, it, it has worried me for some time, and I, so I take no pleasure in mm. it, but I don't, I don't see any great sign in any part of the political spectrum of anybody saying, actually, we need to sort this out in some way or mm. other. And we, do, we live beyond our means. We do. Country. But as, a, as, as individuals, I think we do far more as well, because even to go ridiculously back to um, scenarios whereby uh, when I was a kid, you know, my father would not let me. I wanted to buy a camera once when I was about yeah. 14. And, and the local shop man in the camera shop said, oh, you can get it on HP, high yeah. purchase, which you don't really hear about. And my father said, no, you can't have anything on high purchase. You save up the money and then you buy it. And I mean, that is unheard of. Yeah, well, your father and mine, they came from a generation which had a deep horror of debt. Yeah. Total. Regard never have never, never, had an never, never, never contracted debt. Never get into debt. No. If you did get into debt, then get out of it as quickly yeah. as possible. And bankruptcy was a major shame. Yeah, absolutely. And all that has gone now. And people say, well, it's much more relaxed. And look how fast the economy runs and all the wonderful yeah. things we can have. But there, it, it is always the case. There, there is always a bill at the end. Yeah, people go bankrupt now just to avoid paying somebody back. I'm afraid some people have always done that, but it's the trouble is it's not it's not something that people people worry about, and therefore we no. move much more towards a debt-based society. And then when the debt is called in, what do we do? Mm. And do you think that the weakness of the economy is due to the fact that we're less of a manufacturing economy now? I think so. I think it was a great mistake. I think at the time that the manufacturing industry was more or less dispensed with, actually in the years after we joined the European Union. Mm which was one of the reasons why a lot of people in the Labour Party were against joining the common market at the time. Uh, everybody said it doesn't really matter. The manufacturing industry is a thing of the past. I, I believe that fashionable opinion among economists is shifting back towards the idea that a manufacturing base is quite important. Right. Um, well, because we've seen, have we not, the problem of relying on everybody else for, for what it is that you need, because well, food now is more expensive because it comes in from abroad. All the things that we buy from China have gone up massively in price because of the yeah. cost of shipping it, because the cost of containers apparently has gone up, the cost of shipping has gone up, the cost of fuel has gone up. So everything that we import 
has become more expensive. Yes, and also there's the, the simple point. If you have a large car plant somewhere in southern England, which is doing very well, but it's it's part of a vast foreign empire, and the decisions on its future are taken several thousand miles away, uh, there is less likelihood uh, that it will be, as it were, kept going for political reasons. Mm. If there's a squeeze, uh, then whatever its home country is, is is more likely to impose that squeeze in Britain than yes. it is in its own territory. So that's also a problem. But I think in general, it's it, it gives a it gives an economy a, a, a certain solution. Yeah. And yes, I remember. A story. It's also healthy for a society yeah. to have people making things. People yeah. actually, if they're working, they they feel better if they're making something. Yeah. And I think, and it's we, a community thing. We have well, a lot of, um, of of social breakdown in areas which used to be manufacturing or or, or mining, where there's a great deal of unhappiness mm. among people who simply haven't got the purpose they used to have anymore. I think no, that's, because that's they also don't lost. have a community of people who used to go and work in a in a big factory. I mean, it's akin to the big steelwork towns in Pennsylvania, yeah. isn't it? Where you know you might not want people to work there, but somebody's got to do it. Well, I would be happier about this if people could point to me to to, to really satisfactory replacements appearing in these areas for the for for, for the lost yeah. work and the lost work ethic and right. the lost family strength, which uh, which went with those industries. Mm. If someone else come up with, with with those things, that's fine by me. But as long as they don't, but they haven't. I think I tend to think that manufacturing industry has a point to it. Yeah, and to, to your point about sort of uh, over over powerful um, companies and or countries, I remember a story about Ford supposedly going to Harold Wilson's government and saying we will build a new Ford plant where, which will make the Ford Fiesta, but we demand this 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 and this, and they asked for a whole load of sort of yeah. tax breaks and all sorts of things, and in the end they couldn't agree, so they built it in Spain instead. Yeah, well, that that I'm afraid is is is, is how multinationals are, are bound to behave, mm. and almost everything is multinational. Yes. Shall we talk a bit about what's happening in the Russian scenario? You well, sure. This weekend. I mean, my what I tried to say at the weekend is I don't you know, I don't care what people think about this. Mm. I mean, the, anybody as far as I'm concerned is free to have any opinion they like, but so am I. And it's perfectly possible for a, a patriotic uh, person who believes in freedom and is against invasions and believes that uh, b- believes that all these things are, are wrong can also be against the current policy of the British government in stoking the war in Ukraine. Mm. Uh, whatever your attitude is towards it, this ne- isn't necessarily a wise policy. It should be being discussed. There should be debates in Parliament where people, uh, uh, I can say seriously, and be listened to without being shouted down, can say, actually, is this the right policy of this country? What is our interest in in Ukraine? How is it served by actually sending weapons and money into this war? Mm. Wouldn't we, as a responsible major power, uh, be better occupied trying to trying to obtain peace, especially given the terrible, alarming developments mm. in Ukraine in, in the in, in, in the past actually couple of weeks? Yes. Which the, the the possibility of some sort of nuclear Exchange has suddenly become real, yeah. and, and you, you get, can't rule it out, can you? You can rule nothing out. I mean, the one of the cleverest people in British diplomacy, Sir Roderick Braithwaite, who was the British ambassador in Moscow, actually when I was out there for my newspaper, and is, is one of the sharpest and cleverest diplomats we've ever had. Speaks perfect Russian, mm. uh, knows huge numbers of Russians at, at high level. He wrote to the Times last week saying it was, it, 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 it's impossible to predict what's going to happen in Moscow now. Putin could disappear overnight. Nobody knows who will replace him if so. Uh, trying to predict it is, is, is a job for astrologers. Mm. And this is somebody who really knows his onions. Yeah. There's a very big problem developing over there, and we, I think we should be a good deal less gung-ho about it. I also think that, that the American policy 
which is being followed there of, uh, of, of war, 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 and no jaw, 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 is, is one which is inherently mm. dangerous. And it's not, everybody says, oh, well, if you say that, you're Neville Chamberlain, you want to appease yes. you. And it's, it's, actually, it's not true. Right. The person who said jaw, jaw is better than war, war was Winston Churchill. Mm. And the person who actually undertook the greatest act of appeasement in modern history, alongside Franklin Roosevelt, was Churchill himself. Mm. When at Yalta in 1945, they handed most of Eastern Europe to Stalin. Yeah. Uh, they knew perfectly well that they had no real alternative because it, 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 another, uh, as it were, a third European war was intolerable. No one, no one could have taken it. They had to do it. Mm. Appeasement is just a rude word for an act of diplomacy you don't like. Yes, and that is the trouble, isn't it? Because as long as uh, there are people like Putin and countries like Russia, uh, which perhaps operate differently to what we would do, um, you know, you're not going to change them. They're not even going to be different to the way that yeah. they are. And so if you said to, to, to Vladimir Putin, well, we need to come to some kind of deal, the people who criticise you would say, well, so should he just get away with it? Well, people do get away with things. Well, they do. And, of course, countries like Saudi Arabia get away with all kinds of things. But it's not just that. I mean, the, the, it, it, it is the case that a lot of policies adopted by Western countries, particularly by the United States, have helped to create Putin as he is. Mm. And uh, among those who opposed the policy of NATO expansion were Russian liberal politicians, such as Yegor Gaidar, who we affected to admire. Mm. Uh, but when he actually went to friends in, among NATO ambassadors back in, I think, 2004, and said, will you please, please bring an end to this NATO expansion? It's nothing, it's, it's disastrous. Mm. No one listened to him. Mm. So actually, d did, we really, uh, did we really want to encourage and help Russian liberals? Uh, because the, the policy which we followed did the reverse. Mm. It, it, it helped create... Putin-style nationalism and the and the autocracy which mm. he's now created. And, and defence turned into attack. Stay where you are, we'll talk some more about that and also um, about Gordon Brown's recent activities as well. Peter Hitchens is here. Uh, we'll take more of your calls coming up after that. Uh, this is Talk TV. Nationwide, by your side, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV with you all the way through until one o'clock when Ian Collins will be here, of course, as well. Lots more to talk about. Peter Hitchens is here. Uh, should we talk about uh, Gordon Brown and his um, expurgations this week? Yeah, I was surprised it got less attention. I mean, mm. the, the Guardian rightly gave it a lot of attention, but he came up with this report. Among, among its major recommendations was the end of the House of Lords. Yeah. Now, I think a lot of people will sympathise with that because the House of Lords, especially in recent years, has become a complete morass mm. of people. There's so many it's members too big, isn't it? appointed by various prime ministers yeah. for reasons that we... We won't go into, but uh, for goodness sake, it's, it is a hugely unwieldy and not, mm. and not very impressive body now. Right. Something has to be done. And Gordon Brown has come up with a plan for a kind of uh, a, a kind of elected Senate of some kind, which will be more or less regional in basis. Mm. But it, it's a major constitutional reform, having a second elected mm. chamber in the country. And at the same time, there's a big growth in the Labour Party, the campaign for proportional representation. A lot of unions have switched sides. Uh, I, d I don't think it's happened yet. I think a vote is expected this week mm. at the Labour Party conference, which could actually vote in favour of, uh, of of proportional representation. Keir Starmer says that he doesn't want to do it. But on the other hand, is he going to win an election? It's much more likely, it seems to me, that the next election will be hung, mm. in which case he'll have to go to the Liberal Democrats, and they will certainly want PR. I mm. think it's a very real possibility that we could 
after the next election, have some of the biggest political reforms that we've seen in terms mm. of the way this country is governed uh, since the Blair years, and maybe even more significant. And uh, hardly anyone's discussing mm. it. They ought to be. Yes, it's, it would be a very radical change. If you people, a lot of people say, "Oh, first past the post is clapped out. It's unfair." Yeah. It is unfair. It is old. It has several advantages. One of them, it creates an adversarial parliament where you actually have two parties which don't particularly like each mm. other, which is good for it's good for freedom. Yeah, and the other thing is that it means you get strong governments while they're in power, which uh, which can then be turfed out and replaced immediately by somebody else if they become unpopular. In, in, in PR, mm. it's a constant game of musical chairs in which most of the people always keep their seats. Yes. It's very hard to get rid of a government in a proportional way. And it's also very system. difficult, isn't it, to be in, in any way ideological because it almost always ends up in some kind of coalition of one kind or another. Well, it has to be. And, and I mean, the problem, I was watching uh, for my sins BBC yesterday morning um, at which they expressed some surprise that you know the two leading parties in this country have never been further apart, as if that was a bad thing. And I was going, well, sorry, isn't only, that the way it should if be? If only they were further apart. Yeah, I, mean, I, I wish I they were. I, I think that the, 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 of course, on the huge issues, all the great sex, drugs, and rock and roll issues, which have actually taken up a huge part of government mm. for the past 40 years, they're much too close together. Yeah. And, and and on that, I really could do, I've always said there ought to be what you might loosely call a Daily Mail party versus a Guardian party, mm. and that's that's the way it would actually represent the yeah. divisions in the country. But I'm hugely in favour of an adversarial mm. parliament where there is a lot of, of, of fighting and, uh, and disagreement yeah. and the government never feels safe. I think it's good for freedom. Yes. It also, it's good for the way the country is run. You can't, you, if you've constantly got an opposition snapping at your heels, mm. uh, you will govern better. And do you think Labour's willingness or, or desire to, to want proportional representation is based on them losing Scotland? Because without Scotland, they can never really govern properly on their own. Well, yes, they've also lost a lot of southern England. You yeah. could look at and southern, the north. Well, there's large parts of the country where Labour simply can't rely mm. on, on seats anymore. And it's, 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 it is now a very different party from the one which used to win elections outright. Mm. I would have thought it's essential for them to do it. And I'm, su I'm surprised that Keir Starmer being so unwilling to talk about yeah. it. But I think he, he may have to come round. Right. Uh, but the problem is, if they don't put it in their manifesto at uh, the next election, then maybe we'll have mm. to have referendums, which would be... I was going to say, so how, how would it happen I don't legally? Know. I mean, this, they the, can't presumably do it without a referendum. Can oh, of course they? you can. There's no, there's no obligation in, 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 in mm. this country's law to have referendums. Uh, the Parliament Act is the, is, is the ultimate guardian, and the House of Lords, of course, is supposed to be the guardian of the Parliament Act. Mm. And that's another reason why House of Lords reform is such an important thing. You would then have, as the final backstop, to prevent a government, say, from cancelling the next general election, yeah. you then have a, a chamber which is much more under the control of the party whips but uh, would you Downing not then need, before. But would you not then need, say, a second reading... Or you know, has the, the bill going to the House of Lords in which they would have to vote to abolish themselves. It's very difficult to see how it, how it, how it can be done. Yeah. Uh, but if you, uh, the only way you can do anything really is, is, uh, under this unwritten constitution is to win an election mm. with that in your uh, clearly in your manifesto. Yeah. In which case, the House of Lords has to give into it. What the House of Lords will never give into is legislation which you've cooked up after the mm. after the election, which wasn't in in the manifesto. Right. Well, Boris Johnson's proved that you can win an election with a massive majority and do hardly anything at all well that's not <laughs> <laughs> i mean 
I'd like to say, I mean, probably people will say, hang on, there is quite a lot of things that went on behind the scenes that you don't even know about, like the online safety bill and all that sort of thing. Yeah. But he doesn't seem to have done very much. It's quite, well, he would say he got Brexit done, wouldn't he? Well, he would say that, but that was well, I'm not done. saying I'm not. I, I don't want to be a but, spokesman, <laughs> but it is what he would say. Perhaps you should get a peerage for that. Yeah, but that was one thing that was kind of already done before I he know, got in. I know. I you know. know. I, we, we still don't know whether he actually believed in it or not. No, but no. no, it is. It's true. It is a weird. It um, is the whole the whole also, era. Do you remember that very odd referendum we did have about the AV? I remember business? it very well. Yes, because I remember nobody knew it was going on. Back at the in time. the old days when we used to sit in much less salubrious surroundings in uh, Hatfields, which you'll remember. Well, I remember um, in a little dark studio for Talk Sport. I remember having some Liberal Democrat in to explain um, how it was all going to work, and I was completely baffled by uh, the, the system that they were proposing. And I don't think anybody really understood what it was. Uh, they did though. They knew it would be good for them, yeah, and so that's why they pursued it. I mean, yeah. these, these systems are very, very intricate, yeah, uh, but they do, but they do tend to help because there are such different as, versions. Such as the Liberal Democrats, yeah, aren't they? Because in Scotland, uh, my understanding is they have the list system, whereby you end up getting people elected who you didn't actually vote for because they're nominated by the party. Yeah, I think it's partly that and partly yeah. that, but it, it, you get first past the post as a well. Mixture. Yeah. I think I think the London Assembly is, is done on the mm. same basis. Isn't it? Right, I think so. And we have the weird thing in London as well of, of the the only part of Britain which has an elected president. Mm. And the mayor is... A, they have other mayors in the country, but yeah. they don't have the same power as the London mayor. The mayor of London is directly elected as if he were a president in, an, in a, in a non-monarchical country. It's very strange. Well, right? I think he certainly sees himself as the president well, he of London. He's, he's not answerable to the Assembly, and no. that's, that's the huge difference. Right. And, uh, you, could, you could tend to... I, th- I just think that we are on the edge in this country, in this, in this new reign, of a huge number of major changes in the way in which we're governed. And people should be on the alert, on the yeah. alert for them. You may like this, if you, but you you would think very carefully because yeah. a lot of these things don't show their true character yes. until they be, come into I mean, existence. certainly those people from UKIP back in the day were probably quite right to be miffed at the idea that they'd got a reasonably large number of people voting for them, and then you got one seat. It's the price you pay. Yeah. But I think if you wanted reform, what you would do, you would you would reform the, the contra- campaign contributions uh, so that uh, dodgy billionaires couldn't keep yeah. parties going. You'd get rid of state aid parties so that corpse parties yeah. co- couldn't keep going. And you'd change the broadcasting rules, which at the moment give huge, yeah. a huge edge to the existing mm. parties and cut out any challenge of mm. parties coming in. Those reforms would keep first past the post going and, and, and modernise it, and quite possibly be the midwife for new political mm. parties, which I think this country very bad. Oh, needs. I think so. Both no the question. two major parties seem to me to be more or less corpses representing groups of people in London and practically nobody else. Mm. But they carry on collecting the tribal votes mm. of the parties they used to be, and and that's that's the problem. Something needs to be done okay. to separate them from those tribal votes and get those people voting for parties which really represent them. Yes. Well, we shall see. There'll be a long conversation, I'm sure, and we'll have it for, for many, many years to come. Peter, thank you very much indeed. As okay. ever, Peter Hitchens, Mail on Sunday column, of course. It's out there. You can read it on Twitter. You can find it on Twitter. You can find it on their website as well. Uh, we've got more to do. We're going to talk about electric cars because apparently it costs you 18p now a mile to run an electric car. You can have a petrol one for 19p. Not much difference, really, is there? This is Talk TV. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. The right-wing alliance that won Italy's national election will usher in a rare era of political stability. Um, It says here it's a very important moment, I think, not just for Italy, but for the European Union as well. A woman called Giorgia Maloney, leader of the Brothers of Italy, is likely to be, and I think has just become, the first female woman to win 
power in Italy. So let's talk to Dominic to find out what's going on. Dominic, a very good afternoon to you. Afternoon, Mike. Thanks very much indeed for talking to me. I mean, people seem to be obsessed with calling this party a far right party and highlighting that she's a very traditional conservative. Um, but the truth of the matter is that this is more important, really, than anything to do with what side of the spectrum she's on. It's more to do with, for me, um, a sort of anti-EU vote, isn't it? I wouldn't go that far to say it's an anti-EU vote, Mike, because, you know, she's not saying that uh, she's out of the EU or the Euro. What she's made clear is that she's going to stand up for Italy's national interests within the European Union in a stronger manner. Um, I think it's also important to note that although her coalition uh, has done very well, and uh, you mentioned in your opening comments that there's hope that this will bring stability to Italy, um, actually two things to note. One is that the turnout was the lowest ever in Italy. 64%. That means 36% of people didn't vote. Now, Maloney's party uh, got 26% as part of her coalition. So that means more people didn't vote than even voted for Maloney's party. Uh -huh. um, I think it's also uh, very important to note that um, although it is uh, a right-wing-led government, I'm not sure it's going to bring stability particularly because Matteo Salvini, the leader of the League, um, has constantly disagreed uh, with Maloney. Uh, Silvia Berlusconi uh, seems to be on a kind of self-destructive uh, end, particularly the statements he's made about Russia. Yeah. So I think there is a lot of potential for conflict within this coalition. And as you well know, Mike, uh, coalitions in Italy and government don't tend to protect. Yes. I mean, I suppose when you say the word stability and Italian government, you don't really think the two things go together terribly well. Um, but I must confess, I was in Italy um, this summer. Uh, managed to get away for a couple of weeks. And, and I found Italy to be seemingly far better run than Britain is now. Uh, and I was laughing about that because when I was a child, I used to go to Italy and marvel at how disorganised it all was. So, I mean, they've had their problems in the past. Um, and you're used to governments changing quite rapidly in, in Italy. But, I mean, it is quite a significant shift to the right, isn't it? Well, it is in the sense that uh, the previous government obviously wasn't really a political government in the true sense because Mario Draghi, the banker, uh, was prime minister and obviously didn't represent the party. So, yes, I agree uh, in general it is a shift towards the right. I'm hesitant about the use of the term far right. Yeah, me too. I um, think it's ridiculous. I think it's too easily thrown about, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, yes, it's a conservative orientated government. They stand for traditional families, asserting national interests. Um, particularly, they want to kind of challenge the woke agenda. And uh, Maloney uh, has stated that she wants to challenge the LGBT lobbies. Um, the current uh, the uh, co coalition is definitely against introducing gay marriage in Italy. At the moment, there are civil partnerships uh, for homosexual people, which is uh, a weaker situation, particularly because uh, it restricts their adoption. So I see it more as a kind of conservative government. And let's not forget there were conservative governments asked with Berlusconi. Um, so I don't see it as a a big shift yes. towards the far right. No, I mean, I was I was reading up on her yesterday, and I mean, to me, she looks more like a kind of fairly traditional Republican candidate in the United States, you know, sort of God-fearing, you know, Christian-type, you know, pro-family, probably pro-life um, 
some you know somebody who who stands up for an awful lot of the things that you would expect a republican presidential candidate to stand up for so yeah i'm like you i mean i think the idea that all of these media companies uh, including our own by the way on our own news says far right you know i find it quite irritating actually and maloney herself has associated with the republican party and with the conservative party in the uk as well um Meanwhile, though, she has also formed strong links with uh, the right-wing governments in Hungary, mm. Poland, associated with the Vox Party in Spain, has links to Sweden's uh, Democrats. So there is definitely a right drift there, but uh, I'm hesitant about this use of the term far right. Yes. No, I think we can agree on that. But there's clearly something going on, isn't there? It's happened in Sweden. Uh, it's happened in Italy now. Um, we know that it was already the case in, in Hungary. Um, and in other parts of Europe, there have been sort of right-wing groups growing in popularity. And I'm wondering whether there's a, a common a commonality to, to a lot of this. And a lot of it is around immigration, isn't it? Well, undoubtedly, the new coalition has said that they want to restrict illegal immigration. And Loney has stated that she would like to use the Navy to stop migrant boats uh, coming to it. But I would see it more to do with the kind of erosion of the kind of cosmopolitan elites and particularly uh, the EU's authority. But while I don't see it as an, a directly kind of anti-EU vote, um, let's recognise that many, many ways the EU is not functioning properly at the moment. I mean, the Stability and Growth Pact rules uh, have been suspended until 2024. That obviously gives governments a little bit of leeway uh, not to abide by those rules and hopefully to increase uh, investment and turn around the really uh, static state of the Italian economy. Yes. And so as far as the um, stability point that you addressed a moment ago, I mean, are you suggesting that it might not be possible for this government to form or to hold together for long or will there be another election? What do you think? Well, we're at a stage now where, I mean, actually, votes are still being counted uh, as we speak, and the percentages are changing slightly, but not by very much. So when that process is complete, uh, the winning coalition will then put forward its ministers to the president, and President Mattarella will ha ha does have the right to uh, veto ministers, including the prime minister. I don't think he's going to veto Maloney because been so strong. Mm. For example, key posts like the economy minister, uh, in 2018, President Mattarella vetoed Eurosceptic uh, economy minister Paolo Solona. So the process is going to be one of forming the government. The new parliament's not due to meet until the 13th of October. Um, so his role uh, is to ensure that the government is in a position of stability in both houses of parliament. Okay. So my point on stability, I think more of the problems are going to start around the choice of ministers mm. and competition between the members of the coalition. But then there are significant uh, differences um, on things like sanctions uh, to Russia, on uh, using debt to reduce energy, uh, reduce energy spending. So I think that's where the tensions are likely to emerge within the Coalition. Okay. Dominic, thanks very much indeed for talking to us. Dominic Standish, the writer from Spikes Online, lecturer at the University of Iowa, uh, on the election of Georgia Maloney.
the first female leader of Italy. Her party polling around about 26% of the vote. Um, and it's going to be a fascinating time in Italy. It's going to be a fascinating time in the EU. Watch this space. This is Talk TV. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.